Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons October Journal Club podcast. My name is Lekas Dagubadi and will be our moderator today. I am a, a PGY7 neurosurgery resident at Penn State Hershey Medical Center and a CNS resident fellow. I have the pleasure of discussing an interesting skull-based article joined by world-class discussions today. The article is titled Residual and Recurrent Disease Following Endoscopic Endonasal Approach as a Reflection of Anatomic Limitation for the Resection of the Midline Anterior Skull-Based Meningiomas. We're joined by the senior author, Dr. Paul Gardner. Dr. Gardner, can you introduce yourself? Thank you, Dr. Dagobadi, and, and thank you to the CNS. I think this is an absolutely fantastic format. Um, you know, this was a very interesting article for me. It was um, both Dr. Prevedello is here with us, and I were part of developing and pushing some of the boundaries of endonasal approaches. And as part of that, frankly, you're learning what you can and can't access. And, and I think um, the whole skull base and neurosurgical community has kind of been a part of a conversation that's happening in the literature and at meetings about when should we and shouldn't do different approaches. It's really stirred up a lot of uh, interest and passion in that. And this paper really came out of wanting to clarify or make more concrete, not only what I thought maybe were the approaches or the limitations of the endonasal approach, uh, but also to put it out in the literature. Um, you know, our, our teaching always from uh, both of our mentor, Dr. Kassam, was the do not cross the nerve rule. Uh, and certainly uh, that's uh, appropriate and really fits with this paper. Uh, and that's the simplest way to distill this paper down. But obviously in practice, things are much more complicated. There are ways you can widen your bony access and um, there are ways your technique changes over time. And, and that was really the goal of this paper was to, uh, to understand that and, and try to show it in a very concrete form. Um, so the paper itself uh, really was looking at what turned out to be 100 patients. Uh, we looked at a time period looking at all, all anterior cranial based midline tumors, so olfactory, planum, and tuberculum tumors. Uh, and it turned out across that time point, we ended up with 100 patients. So that made the math very easy, which uh, always helps me when I have to deal with statistics. Um, and the interesting thing uh, that we found out, out was everyone wants to know, well, how, what was your success rate, success defined by resection? And we were able to get resection in about two thirds. And that's really been really pretty consistent. So 64 of the patients had a, a, a gross total resection or really Simpson grade one resection, not just gross total. Uh, and the most common, uh, so what we did is look at both recurrence and more importantly, perhaps residual as a sign of a limitation of the approach. One thing that was interesting is actually we had less residual over time, probably both a reflection of improvement in our technique, doing things like uh, greater decompression, but also reflection perhaps of better judgment of, of selection of cases as we learned. Um, what we found the most common location of residual, maybe not surprising, but the anterior clinoid. There, you know, the anterior clinoid can only reach perhaps the medial quarter of it. So if there's significant anterior clinoid disease, that will be left behind. That's followed by the optic canal. And then perhaps a little bit of a surprise, or at least conceptually eye-opening to me, was the anterior falx as a location of residual. Uh, and then finally, lateral orbital roof, which is, I think, something we knew. We can't really pass the lateral meridian. But I do think understanding this and putting this very clearly uh, in this format was useful. The other question is, well, okay, so we leave residual. It's, it's always a very small residual in these locations. When is that significant? 
Well, looking at a, a 47 month follow-up for these patients, a relatively long follow-up, only one patient needed a craniotomy for treatment. Um, and so growth only occurred, uh, and I believe um, about uh, uh, nine patients out of this group. And most of those were patients who had residual, not surprisingly. And that little bit of progression was usually treated with radiosurgery successfully. And so in that sort of situation, it shows that really uh, this is a successful philosophy as well, even if there is residual, perhaps that can be managed either with observation or other ways. So that's the long and the short of the paper. And um, I was very happy to see it published, of course, obviously in this journal uh, and uh, equally happy to see it as a part of this discussion because it's been uh, an important part of that conversation about these approaches. Thank you so much, Dr. Gardner. And I agree. I think uh, there, there's always a conversation regarding what's the best approach for these anterior cranial fossa tumors and, and knowing the limitations is, is the first step to going about doing them. Um, and joining us uh, is also our guest faculty, uh, Dr. Daniel Prevedello. Uh, Dr. Prevedello is the Director of Minimally Invasive Cranial Surgery Program at The Ohio State University. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Prevedello. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the invitation, particularly being here with, uh, with Paul as we were together and we were, you know, started this and both of us know like that we were really pushing for this anterior fossa meningioma uh, back in the day. And I really agree with uh, the way uh, Paul explained that uh, we noticed over the years, some of the limitations and our indications became more accurate. I, I, I would agree hundred percent. And um, so to start uh, Paul, I'd like to know if the results of this manuscript and these hundred patients that you guys look back and analyze in precision, if, if knowing with this knowledge now, if you have changed or if you will change uh, some of the indications for endoscopic and nasal approaches for anterior based meningiomas? Um, I don't think it will dramatically uh, change something overnight, but I think, um, you know, as you said, it helps to crystallize in my mind what I really think are the limitations and therefore makes it much more clear for me cases where I really should be doing a craniotomy. Probably the most um, obvious one of those is when a tumor crawls up the anterior falcs. Not only can I not get all of it, but the truth is that a tumor coming up the anterior falcs uh, very much won't require the brain retraction if I do a traditional open approach because there's no brain even in front of the tumor. That may seem obvious, um, but I think that to me uh, creates a very, a very clear uh, picture of it. Um, I think this helps me um, discuss with patients uh, as well. Um, so I, I think it, it is part of what my learning has been over time and has helped to really crystallize this for me. Um, I, I think that answers the question. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate. And then I'll, I'll make it more precise for you then. Uh, let's just as an example, let, let's see, for instance, you see a patient with uh, a meningioma that is within the limits of an endonasal approach. Like it's not on top of the orbits, it's not on the anterior clinoid, and it's not on the fox, it's just sitting right there on the olfactory groove with some edema, but the patient when you test has normal smell. So uh, what type of indication uh, for surgery would you uh, describe for this patient as the best uh, uh, scenario for the treatment? Great question. And I think it points out one of the um, real clear limitations of this study. This study was never designed to 
try to answer all the questions for approach selection. It was merely only designed to answer one piece of that. And what are the mechanical limitations, the anatomical limitations? And I think that's a really important uh, point of this because the, the truth is that patient deserves a much different conversation than a patient who is anosmic. The truth is most olfactory groove patients who have a large tumor, the majority of them are anosmic, but the ones who are not very much deserve a conversation about the pros and cons of the approach. Um, there are certainly other aspects, uh, vascular encasement, uh, and this study was not a limitation, but I think is part of the learning curve and part of what we uh, held off on in some of the early cases. Calcification did limit uh, approach as well, but I think uh, function preservation is important. If you have a tumor with vision loss, there are more and more studies coming out uh, that show that a midline endonasal approach is probably superior. Obviously for olfactory preservation, especially for an anterior planum or an olfactory groove meningioma, there is not going to be a chance of preserving olfaction. And that has to be very honestly discussed with the patient. Now, the truth is, even when I do a craniotomy, I do not always preserve olfaction. I might preserve the olfactory tract, pat myself on the back, and then test them later, and they've lost it. But my approach to that is to discuss with the patient, these are the pros and cons. If I do it endonasally, I will not touch your brain. I do not think a craniotomy uh, necessarily causes any brain damage, but there is some slightly increased risk and that's uh, from that perspective. I also think from an endonasal approach for an olfactory groove, you inherently have a lower symptom grade resection. Um, and I have that honest discussion with the patient and to try to, and also you have to very honestly help them understand what anosmia means. It's not just, oh, I can't smell some things. You can't taste the flavor of food. So if that's really important to you, and I find for many patients, they will select a craniotomy. So I try to provide it for them. Uh, in that setting. If they say, you know, doc, I just can't decide, then I ask them, how important is the flavor of food to you? How important is that part of it? So I think respecting that sense is important, but I also think uh, putting it in line with all the other uh, things that we have to consider with these approaches uh, is, is appropriate. No, I agree. I, I, I do think that um, sense of smell is one of the uh, uh, senses and uh, very important and very important for quality of life. So I agree with you. I think that that honest conversation is really the key. So so let's just uh, change and imagine like tomorrow then. Well, Danny, uh, hold on. Danny, let me just go slightly off topic and ask you a question. Someone sure. always asked me that I have a very hard time with. If you could give up one sense, what would it be? One of the five senses, which one would it be? Oh, man. It's a, a, it's a tough question. one, but, but, but it will probably be smell. I think it might be. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. I, I don't know that I would want to give up hearing. I think that's the only other one I can yeah. think of, uh, and, we can, and, you know, and, and tactile like function is very important to me. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> anyway, tough question. Sorry to, sorry to go off track, good, good but question. fun question. Yeah. But let's put a scenario, uh, Paul, that tomorrow you're in clinic. I know that uh, next Tuesday, I know if you're still doing on Tuesday <laughs> like me, uh, continue on Tuesday clinics. So then you, you get the patient that now clearly tells you like has been 10 years with no smell. Um, and, and then you look at the MRI, this is very large olfactory groove taking the entire anterior scope base, does touch the fox, goes beyond the, or the orbits. It, it kind of goes around the clinoids and a lot of edema. Uh, what is this strategy? How, how would you um, approach this patient? How, how you would you describe now, knowing the knowledge you have now with this paper 
you know, what, what, what is your honest opinion about how to take care of this patient? So I think in general, uh, probably a craniotomy for that patient, a full bicoronal subfrontal approach for trying to get a radical resection, but there are caveats to that. Um, how, you know, if the patient is presenting with significant cognitive uh, deficits, perhaps even in an older patient, which is very common. So in an older patient, perhaps Simpson grade one resection is not important. Uh, uh, preservation of cognitive function is in that patient. In that patient, if I thought my goal uh, were a radical resection, um, because it's a younger patient, and, and I think that, um, for example, the tumor's crawling up the falcs, absolutely an, an, open, uh, an open subfrontal approach. But if this is an 85-year-old with severe cognitive decline and a ton of edema, I don't need, all I need to do is debulk that tumor. So I would say there's a gradation of what you can offer in that situation. I know you've been a big proponent of doing a staged approach to those. And I think that's absolutely brilliant because you can do a staged approach. You can resect the tumor or 50% of the tumor even virtually avoid a leak in that situation uh, and get the uh, edema to resolve. And then you can take your time with whatever other approach uh, you may want with, I think, potentially less risk. We've all done a craniotomy on these where perhaps you have an inadvertent durotomy on a very edematous brain and that portion of the brain can have a venous infarct that you, you, know, you didn't retract it, you didn't do anything intentional, but these things do happen. Um, the other thing that I've seen with staging in that fashion is that occasionally you actually discover that while the tumor appears to have a much wider range, once you debulk it, it actually was sort of pushing boundaries and not truly lateral boundaries. Now, the ones that are sessile and we can tell where their roots are extending laterally, yeah, I would, I would favor going towards a craniotomy unless I'm worried about cognitive function. But what, what's your algorithm for that? I think you've stated it very, very well in the past. Yeah, yeah. So what I do, it's, um, it depends on the size of the tumor and all that. But for these large ones, what I do, I recommend a, a stage one endonasal, even for young people. Um, and the interesting part is that um, in that first stage, I performed the approach the same, the devascularization of the tumor by taking the anterior and posterior tumoidal arteries. And then very important not to see the brain. So I don't go as a real intention to stages, because if you start manipulating the interface between the brain and the tumor, you start creating scar and you're going to make your second surgery much more difficult. So I just stay on the core of the tumor, open the dura right on in the center, try not to see the brain, and they core the tumor uh, in the, internally. So what that happens, uh, then if you do an MRI a few weeks later, that tumor collapses with the similar concept of the old days for the transphenoidal surgery for uh, pituitary adenomas where people waited the tumor to go down. And then um, we also see that the uh, edema in the brain gets smaller. So when you do the second stage, um, you're not to worry about doing a very big opening like if you're doing for the first time where you're afraid of the brain coming and fighting with you and expanding there. So then I, then I, I just, the second stage basically just to remove the, the residual tumor that you left from the first uh, intentionally. So that's kind of the, uh, that what we do for that, that scenario when the patient already have loss of smell. And for the, um, when the smell is there, like you described, we also tend to go uh, for uh, craniotomy and uh, for the cases where the smell is not present, that's when we, we and the tumor doesn't go to those limits because it's very interesting in our practice. We also notice the same aspects, the FOX, I had patients with residual on the FOX, on the clinoids and on top of the orbits. 
And uh, we definitely learned to indicate better uh, those uh, cases. So when I look at, I'm actually looking at my own numbers here um, uh, recently, and we noticed that um, actually the smaller olfactory groups, groove tumors are the ones I end up doing craniotomy because those are the ones with smell. The medium ones, they're not very large going to Fox, Klein, or their orbits are the ones I did endonasal because they lost the smell, but they're still medium size. And the ones that lost the smell, but the tumor goes beyond, are the ones that are doing the two stages. What, uh, what about for a very old patient with a really, really large tumor? Would you do a single stage for that? or Single stage, and I have a couple of cases, exactly. You, like you know, yeah. The interesting thing about that, uh, as well as what you described as a staged approach for younger patients, is it requires an incredible amount of surgical discipline. For all of us to only take out part of a tumor not only do you have to debulk it right up to the right point to maximize that debulking, but it is inherent in our DNA to try to get the whole tumor out in a single surgery. It is, there's something that we don't like about it, but I am quite confident that this is much better for patients when we do it this way, but it, it is very difficult to do. And I see younger surgeons struggle with it sometimes. Yeah, you're right. Knowing when to stop is, uh, is always the problem. And I'll tell you, if I had a criticism for my own technique, uh, is actually the fact that knowing where to, where, where to stop is, but the other problem is like when we are, you, you know, when we are doing the large tumors in the nasal, we go around and you see how deep it is, you find the vessels, protect the vessels. And doing, during this, this stage one debulking, you're going with the ultrasonic aspirator or with the um, you know, myriad device, whatever you're using for debulking, and you don't see your other side. You don't know if the tumor has collapsed or not. So there is a risk. I never had a problem with that, but uh, I can see as a criticism that you, you're not um, optimizing your safety by understanding the depth of the tumor when you're debulking internally. Yeah, I mean, inevitably, um, going endonasally, we're coming at the center of a tumor always. And you have to have faith and you have to have strong understanding of what the anatomy is on the other side. That's the one downside. It's the brilliance of it because you're landing right on tumor, but in some ways it's the challenge. You have to see through and know what the anatomy is on the other side. And that does take uh, you know, some experience to do. And with an olfactory groove, if you go straight back with your transphenoidal or transethmoidal trajectory, you're gonna go straight for the ACAs. Absolutely. You have to force yourself on an olfactory to take a 45 degree scope and work anterior. And you know it's what we were taught, Danny, see the whole thing pulsing. And when everything's pulsing on all corners, then you probably have gotten enough. Exactly. Can I ask you guys something real quick? Uh, how long do you wait for your second stage? Uh, yeah. So very, very good question. Uh, so I tried to wait about three, four months because in my mind, that's what it takes for the edema to go away to avoid the, the, you know, the situation where you're fighting the brain. Um, but I had one patient in my series that I actually um, end up uh, taking it back earlier because of the exactly situation we described. So what happened was I, I was not very happy with my debulking on stage one. And I was with fear of the anterior cerebral artery and I ended up stopping the, uh, the surgery a little too early. And she had vision loss with a papilla edema that did not get better. And I was expecting to, it's somewhat better, but she, she was very affected uh, vision wise. And I decided to take about two months. That was the shortest that I've done because um, I was afraid of the reconstruction. If I did it too early, I was afraid of creating a leak because I had a flap healing on the underside. 
So the shortest I've done is two months and then it went fine. It was healed and I got the rest of the tumor stage two and her vision got better. I agree. There's no rush. Uh, basically the same thing. You do have to reconstruct after that first one as though you're never coming back though. Yeah. And the, and the longest that I've done, just to complement, um, it was one year. And the reason was because I had that strategy that Paul described. This was a gentleman in his 70s with lung cancer, but he was having psychiatric changes and vision loss. So I decided, you know, like this gentleman, I just got to debulk this and, and take care of this now. So in his case, I was not with the intention of a second stage. I was just going to debulk. But this gentleman disappeared. Um, he was taking care of his lung cancer. And one year later, he came back saying, Doc Prevedello, I'm losing vision again. And I'm cured. The, ca the cancer is cured. And then I took him for a second stage open and got the rest of the tool. Patients really do generally better if you don't dissect the capsule. The capsule dissection has very clear risk to it. And there's, you know, there's the length of surgery. And then in an older patient, the, often that capsule is part of the edematous area. So they definitely do better when you say pseudo extradural. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gardner, um, is there anything that you, and Dr. Prevedo, that you do based on the tumor consistency and location to try to maximize your tumor resection? Like any techniques you use intraoperatively? I mean, firm, firm tumors, you have to, I mean, it's sort of the same things you would do with open surgery. The, interestingly, in this article, the only thing that actually uh, perhaps predicted slightly higher chance of residual was a calcified tumor. And I think part of that is, frankly, you're able to extend a little bit your, um, your access to tumor if it's soft. If it's soft, I can peel it, I can scrape it off um, perhaps even the clinoid, you know, with an angled endoscope. If it's calcified, I wouldn't dare do that, and it's going to be more stuck. Um, I think part of it is just preparation, and uh, both for you and the patient, of of how long it's going to take and what you're going to be able to accomplish. Um, Danny, I don't know if you have a, a a better answer than that, but no, no, and it's interesting. We all try to identify in the pre-op. We all look at the T2, you know, to try to have this feeling this anticipation, but the reality is unless it's very dark and calcified uh, or very, very, very bright, but if it's very, very bright, you start wondering if it's something else, actually, not a meningioma. Um, this one is in the middle. It's very hard to really predict. Most of them are fibrous and, and hard to really remove completely. Um, yeah, no specific technique, like, uh, you know, we use scissors inside the tumor a lot. Uh, this suction uh, cutter device that I mentioned earlier, and ultrasonic aspirator. The, just got to be careful. Some of the ultrasonic aspirators that you you have to be careful with the nose because it heats. There's a heat component at the. Uh, you don't want to burn the patient. Uh, early in the early days, we were not aware of that, and we had problems. So now we always pay attention with that. But but other than that, is really being careful not going through the tumor too much, and then identifying the the other side of the tumor and dissecting as you do microsurgery. You know. Yeah, I think it's basically a, perhaps the way to think of, we think about it, I know, is, is a preparation to be able to escalate up. We all, you know, come in the room, you say a little prayer that it's going to be soft. And when you see it's not, you uh, say a couple of inappropriate words and, and then you reach for one of these tools, you know, either that micro debris or an ultrasonic and you know you're going to have a longer day and, you know, you cancel meetings or whatever it is you have to do. Uh, but we do have those tools. You have to have those tools available in the extended tips 
so that when you get into that tumor, you can spend the time that you need to debulk it because if you don't have them, that's when you'll start to pull and cut corners and that's when you have complications you shouldn't have. Well, now, since, sorry, sorry. Go, go ahead, Dr. Prabhupada, sorry. Uh, since Paul mentioned that, I have to say one thing that is, is always in my memory when I, when I opened the Dura. Once when I was at UPMC, I opened the Dura, I was doing the case with Snyderman and Carl looked and I, I, first thing I said was like, how nice this one is soft. And, and Snyder just kind of hit me like, never say it. it's too early. Wait, you gotta wait until, and a few minutes later, we were, you know, into a very solid tumor. And said, see, I told you, you cannot say that to her. And now when somebody mentioned that early, I got the same feeling like, don't say that, it's too early. You do need to make sure to devascularize these tumors. So taking those ethmoidal arteries, uh, like Danny mentioned, is critical and it will make a difference in the consistency of the tumor. Is he still like that, uh, Paul? Carl, like uh, you can't say too early. The but much worse, much worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I was looking at figure four, right? And in that image B, you know, the and uh, the coronal scan just shows how high up that image goes or how high up that tumor goes. I guess my question is, you know, I'm hoping that you rely on the uh, pressure and edema from the rest of the brain for things to be pushed down because I can't imagine instruments getting high up there, you know, if it's really stuck and calcified on the surface, right? Well, I mean, there are two, yeah, I mean, I, that's probably a piece of the calcified uh, aspect of it, but there, you know, there are two things about it. The edema absolutely plays a role. I've been surprised in some of these cases when the key step, though, to that is you've got to release the faults. So if you release the most anterior falsine attachment, and you've made their cuts laterally, that's what's holding the tumor up in there. As soon as you do that, if there is pressure and edema, you will, also, you will see the tumor not deliver itself, but start to come into the nose. And one of the things you have to be very careful with when you're doing this is not to open anteriorly too soon. If you haven't defined and debulked posteriorly and perhaps opened and found your ACAs, all of a sudden you're gonna have the anterior uh, pole of the tumor in your face blocking your view. Uh, and so that's a very important rule is to not do that anterior faults cut too soon uh, because it will absolutely come down. And obviously the bigger the tumor is, the less likely it is to happen. But some of these really nicely deliver themselves. Yeah, and depending on the anatomy, not only the tumor will come up, but you get the brain herniating across like uh, the, the frontal lobes can come in front of you and block some of your dissection because of the edema. So uh, try to leave that exposure of the brain more to the end after you debulk. Um, and um, the one thing that I started doing more than I used to do is to really go aggressive with mannitol, the same way we do uh, other surgeries to avoid the brain to come down. Actually, the concept of the brain pushing down adenomas or meningiomas, I never liked that idea. You know, it feels that it's going to help you, but if you have brain coming too soon, too early in the case, it will block you. So um, uh, it's not uncommon that I, I do one per kilo mannitol in cases with a lot of edema for the anterior skull base. Yeah, or my, I might do it closer to the end because it can also be very difficult to reconstruct. It will start to herniate through the defect if it's swollen enough. Mm -hmm. So do you use the mannitol to prevent it from coming down too early and then use Valsalva maneuvers later on as needed? Valsalva, you mean for the CSF leak to see if it... I think he needs to make the tumor deliver. That tumor come down. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, I don't use intracranial pressure to deliver tumor. Okay. Um, just going off that a little bit, uh, you had mentioned this a little, Dr. Pravel, but are there anything, any features or anything that you guys now, based on location, 
are more tolerant of approaching. Uh, this, this paper mainly talked about residual and recurrent, but were there any surprise features or locations that you found that, hey, this is easier to get to than I thought, or you're more tolerant of approaching these tumors? As far as endonasally, you mean? We'd be yeah. more likely to? Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I think that this confirmed that one thing for me, and that's that, you know, vascular involvement or vascular encasement makes this a much more difficult surgery, but it doesn't, it's not a contraindication. You just have to be very respectful of your own learning curve and microdissection and understand that that's a much more complicated case. And it's going to be if you do it open as well. Um, so for me, it sort of reaffirmed that we have this ability to do this, um, especially, you know, with experience, but it does require that further learning curve. I think that was a big one. Um, and it gave me confidence also in our ability to reconstruct, um, you know, because the CSF league rates uh, really did decrease. But I don't, you know, I don't, I'd be curious to see what Danny thinks. Of no, I agree 100%. When I was quite waiting for you to answer and thinking exactly the same, the vascular aspect is that uh, is not prohibitive and definitely is more challenged and, and make us slow down at those dissections. But as we do the same type of surgery, in my mind, when we are doing microsurgery, like you use two hands and you dissect the vessel same way by coming on the nasal or, or through, the, you know, through the microscope via craniotomy. Um, the one thing that I perhaps got a little better is to more aggressively uh, go on top of the orbits. I think um, you know, by removing lumina papyrisha and pushing uh, the uh, periorbit and removing the roof of the orbits and even beyond like uh, using some instruments like to scratch those areas, even past that area. I think we got a little better on that, but I still agree with Paul that that's the, it's a very limited area for us to reach. Um, it's not easy to get there. And uh, to, it is also not, uh, it's, easy, it's not easy to confirm that you got a complete resection because you have the brain sitting there and, and it's, and some of the mannitol and all this may help a little bit to get a more relaxed brain uh, to go to those areas, but it's still a limitation of the approach. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the veins are lateral, but arteries are all midline. So, you know, that great fear of, of some artery on that lateral edge is uh, never had it, never seen it. Um, so. Yeah, and uh, going off that, do you, now we talked about the limitations of the endonasal approach. Do you foresee any technological or technical advances in the future that, that would forego the current limitations you saw? Um, These are hard I, limitations in some ways. I, don't, I think because they're anatomic limitations, I think that's one of the things I like about it um, is that I do think it demonstrates anatomic limitations. Uh, obviously, there is still improvement to be made in instrumentation. I can't sew an injured vessel endonasally. I can do it through an open, if it's a big enough vessel, no one can sew no one I know can sew a frontopolar very effectively um, if it's a small branch, but an A2, absolutely. Uh, that's a different ball game. Um, I do think for extending laterally, it would take some sort of robotic type of, uh, of instrument or some type of robot to, uh, to really extend it laterally. Um, those are the only things that come to mind for me. What about you, Danny? Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. And the question is if it really makes sense to push technology to go into nasal, it becomes you know, once is more lateral, is closer to the surface if you do a craniotomy, you know. Um, I think the future on this may not be in technology to uh, overcome the limitation of the anatomy, but really 
in biogenetics, you know, like a future, maybe a, uh, acting, you know, other ways that not surgery on uh, treating these tumors. Uh, uh, hopefully we're not going to be like in the uh, workforce anymore when that happens, you know. <laughs> but, I, think, I think we're a lot more likely or perhaps closer maybe to ever uh, curing or controlling meningiomas than we are gliomas. I think yeah. there might be a simpler disease, I hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, this was a, a great discussion. Uh, we are coming up at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Gardner and Dr. Pravidella for joining us. This was an amazing um, discussion and you know the partnership, the prior relationship between you guys really showed with the back and forth. So I appreciate that. Uh, I do wanna remind the listeners that uh, there is uh, a CME accredited podcast activity in the Congress of Neurological Surgeons online catalog. It is complimentary to all CNS members and it is worth 1.5 CME credits. Uh, thank you again for everyone joining us and uh, uh, look to see you in the future. Thank you.